Hello, this is Leela Viss, and welcome to Key Ideas. Piano teaching doesn't come bundled with ready-made solutions. This podcast highlights some brilliant options for innovative piano teachers just like you. This is a flashbulb episode, which means I'm going to dive deep into a topic in 20 minutes or less. Today, I'm sharing strategies to help you make rhythm count when it doesn't make sense to your students. Have you heard of the four agreements first coined by author Don Miguel Ruiz? I first heard and blogged about the four nuggets of wisdom back in 2014. Ruiz's self-help book explains that these four agreements form a code of conduct based on ancient Toltec wisdom. He claims that the code advocates freedom from self-limiting beliefs that may cause suffering and limitation in a person's life. Now, even though I may not subscribe to everything stated in the book, the four agreements are extremely helpful in dealing with daily life interactions. In fact, my husband memorized them, and when issues arise at work or with others, he usually quotes these as a way to circle back and ground his perspective. The four agreements are, be impeccable with your word, don't take anything personally, don't make assumptions, and always do your best. Since each of these could be a topic for an episode, and because this episode highlights solutions for gaps in student rhythmic comprehension, I want to zoom in on the third agreement. Don't make assumptions. Are you like me? It's so easy to assume that students remember what we've discussed in a past lesson, or assume they've mastered time signatures because they've aced all the questions about them in a theory test. In reality, that's usually not the case. It's more likely that students grabbed onto the concept, but it may have slipped their minds over the months. Or it could be that they never really understood the concept and yet nodded their heads, yes, when I explained something for the third time, and then wrote down the right answers because they wanted to please me. I confess that my habit of making assumptions shows up frequently, especially when teaching transfer and adult students. Because they may have encountered a term or concept in the past, I assume it's understood for good, not true. So I've learned to warn them when they begin lessons with me that we will backtrack to double check for any gaps, and I assure them that every question they have is a good question. So now that I've been transparent, I challenge you to be honest with yourself. Look back and think about the times you've made assumptions and were surprised what you thought students understood. Please tell me that I am not alone. As with all my teaching advice, keep in mind that it comes from my own battle with rhythmic understanding that kept me from being a strong sight reader for years. My, have things changed. Rhythm makes sense to me now. Mixed in with my past insecurities is the continuous trial and error approach I take during my teaching, my fascination with the science of learning, tips from expert teachers, and an adoration for Dalcros and dance. With all disclaimers and confessions out of the way, here are remedies for four areas that often require reinforcement and remedial work to make rhythm count when it doesn't make sense. First off, Here's how I remedy issues when students have trouble keeping a steady beat. 
But wait, before I go on, I need to address something that bugs me. All too often, I see teachers complain that their students won't count aloud when playing. Science has proven that our brains don't multitask. Instead, the brain switches back and forth between tasks. We take pride when we can get two things done at once, but in reality, we've just gotten good at making our brains zigzag between duties. So no wonder why students won't, can't count aloud. It's asking them to process too much at one time. They must read the pitches, use correct fingering, find the correct hand position, and the list goes on. So what's the remedy? The first solution is that we stop making counting aloud a priority. There, I said it. The root of the problem is not our students. It's our expectations, our assumptions. Why do we ask students to count when in fact they don't know what they are counting? There may be quarter notes or half notes in a measure, but that's not really what we want them to count. We want them to feel a steady beat and then identify the patterns to play over that steady beat. That's a lot to ask when there's no visual aid for a steady beat on the page. It's the invisible current that we assume our students understand, but how can they understand it when they can't see it? If we want students to count the beat, they must experience the beat first. Do this by getting them off the bench and moving, tapping, clapping, and actively listening. Especially if they are in front of a screen all day, make sure to do this frequently. If you have one, grab your large exercise ball or check to see if your students have one in their makeshift gym at home. Ask them to sit and bounce on it so that their entire body experiences the up and down motion. Then challenge them to keep it steady. Or grab a tennis ball or racquetball or any ball you can find at home or that they can find at home and ask them to sync their bounces with yours and then turn on some music and make sure they can match their bounces to the beat of the music. If you are teaching online through Zoom, find a grooving audio track or YouTube video or log into your Spotify playlist. Then share your screen, select the advanced option and choose music or sound from computer only. Your students will be able to match their bounces to the music you're sharing. Keep in mind that their actions may appear a little offbeat to you on your screen. Continue these activities as needed to build students' internal clock. As that develops, I move students into repertoire, but I rarely ask them to read the piece first. I want them to play it, to experience it. I want to equip them with the piece in their ears and hands so they're excited about practicing it. To do this, I usually introduce a portion of the piece by ear or by rote first. I play with a steady beat and they echo and immediately feel and hear how it should sound. Then they take a look at the score and see how it's notated. As students continue to learn the piece, they scan the page for patterns that are the same and different and study it more like a blueprint. Then we dig deeper and begin to clap or tap the tricky rhythms and count aloud if needed. Looking back, I'm quite sure that's how I learned to read Green Eggs and Ham. Mom read it over and over to me, and as I listened and studied the page, I began making sense of the words. The ultimate challenge for our beginners is to play. Why put the burden of counting on them right away? Let them find the magic in playing the piece first, then help them develop their reading skills. Once they build their reading skills, they'll want to learn how to decipher rhythms, and they'll see the need for counting. 
That segues into the next area that often needs reinforcement. Area number two, rhythmic notation. Because we know the language, it's easy to assume note values and time signatures are easy to understand. There we go, making assumptions again. Think about it. A symbol called a half note gets two beats, and another symbol called an eighth note lasts for a half a beat. No wonder why kids get confused. Since Wendy Stevens' blockbuster rhythm cups appeared years ago, I have an excessive amount of solo drinking cups in my manipulative stash. So I printed and taped large numbers on cups and hand my students some chopsticks to use as drumsticks. A cup becomes a mini drum for each beat, and as they top the bottom of each upside-down cup, they chant the number of each cup. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. As they loop back to cup one, they immediately feel the pull to get back to beat one in time as I chant along with them. This is a wonderful lead into discussing upbeats and downbeats in a measure. These numbered cups help students see each beat as its own thing. The numbers give a name for each beat and then also help to identify the location of each beat within a group. When introducing eighth notes, I bring in clear solo cups and place one clear cup after each numbered cup to represent the off part of the beat. In one of our first 88 Creative Keys workshops, Bradley Sowash explains that every beat has two parts, the on or first part and an off or second part. Whoa, did the light bulb go on when I heard that. It makes perfect sense, at least in simple time. I explain to students that just like the word music is one word with two syllables, a beat is a column divided into two parts. When they return to the numbered cups with a clear cups between each one, they chant one zik, two zik, three zik, four zik to help them feel both parts. One zik, two zik, three zik, four zik. Okay, it's a stretch, but now that I've related a beat to something they know, like the word music, they see the need for both the red and the clear cup. They have a physical and visual representation of both parts of a beat. The true test comes when I ask students to transfer this concrete example to their sheet music. I choose a measure from the score and ask them to drum the rhythm on the cups. At first, they may need coaxing and even a demonstration, but soon they catch on. If a measure has four quarter notes, they only tap on the numbered cups and count aloud with confidence because they can imagine the beats in each measure. One way I test their confidence with seeing invisible beats is to ask students to point to a beat in a measure. I'll ask, where is beat two? Or I'll say, I see four beats in each measure. On which beat do you see eighth notes instead of a quarter note? Can you point to it? And I want them to identify, is it beat one, two, three, or four? Their answers show me that they understand that each beat is a column or owns a small section of real estate in each measure, and it's their job to determine what happens during each beat by reading the notation. The third issue that often needs a remedy, those puzzling time signatures. We always buy the same tissues in the square boxes from Costco. 
Long ago, I began saving them and then taped oversized note values to all four sides, leaving the top and bottom blank. As a lesson opener, I set out four boxes with the quarter note side showing. I ask students to count the number of boxes and they can easily see I've set out four. Then we clap or play the note value on each box. Next, I ask them to turn the box to a new side where they may see two eighth notes or eighth note triplets or four sixteenth notes. Although they may not have seen them before, I connect these note values with candy or fruit names. Two eighths is a snicker or apple. Four sixteenth notes is a butterfinger or watermelon. As I keep the beat with a drum and chant along with them, they must clap or play the rhythm and squeeze the correct amount of subdivisions notated on each box. Pear, apple, blueberry, watermelon. Pear, apple, blueberry, watermelon. After they have mastered all the rhythms, I ask them to determine what one note is equal to one box, and they notice that the quarter note is the answer. Then I pull out a solo cup with a quarter note on it to serve as a visual aid for their answer. Next, I ask how many boxes there are, and they quickly say four, and I place a clear cup with the number four over the cup with a quarter note. This four over a quarter note symbol makes complete sense to them. Then we turn back to their music and find that mysterious four-four sign in their music. From there, we review that the top number stands for how many beats in each measure, and the bottom four stands for a quarter note. I also assure them that they may forget what that bottom number means and will keep reviewing until they get it. Now, one more important gap in rhythmic understanding is the battle of three versus four. We live in squares with four sides, and most of the music we listen to is in 4-4. So when it comes to pieces marked in 3-4 time, students unknowingly default to their 4-4 tendencies. That's when I pull out the tennis ball again. I'm so thankful to learn from Dr. Jeremy Didis here in Colorado. He is a diplôme supérieur in Dalcros, and please forgive my French. I know it's not very good. And every time I get the chance, I attend his workshops and someday hope to register for his regular classes. At a past state conference, Jeremy had us all dancing around the room with our shoes off. He also had us bouncing tennis balls in different patterns. First, it was bounce, catch. Bounce, catch, bounce, catch. Then it was bounce, catch, pass, bounce, catch, pass, bounce, catch, pass. And then it was bounce, catch, pass, pass, bounce, catch, pass, pass. Those patterns translated into experiencing 2-4, 3-4, and 4-4. So when students first learn about 3-4 time, I get out the tennis ball. And when students unknowingly morph a song from 3-4 to 4-4 time, we pull out the tennis ball again. I have students take a tennis ball home to practice their 3-4 pattern first before they play their piece in 3-4. Okay, one more thing, and then I'll get off my rhythm soapbox, at least for this episode. Counting aloud shows rhythmic understanding, and it is a necessary skill. I just don't think we should push it on our students until they see the need for it. When they do, I believe it's important to give them options for counting. Option number one, functional counting, like one, 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 two, quarter, quarter, half, note. 
or pear, pear, apple, pear, quarter, quarter, two, ace, quarter. Option number two, metrical counting, like one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, or one and two and three and four and. And option number three, I call practical counting. For example, Beethoven chose 3-8 as the time signature for Furalise. However, when you look at most of the piece, six sixteenth notes appear in most every measure. When students count to six, then it's much easier for them to feel the flow and work out the rhythms throughout the piece. Well, that is until we come to the bridge section with the sixteenth note triplets. That's a topic for another episode. If any of my ideas resonate with you, head to the show notes where you'll find links to blogs about my favorite manipulatives and free printables that you can attach to your empty tissue box collection or solo cups. I also include links to games and resources that drill concepts like audiation, polyrhythms, and subdivisions. Some of the products are called Rhythm on a Roll, Cambrio, Rhythm Make It Count, and Bucket Drumming for Piano Teachers. One resource for private or group lessons is dedicated solely to dotted notes and Christmas tunes. It's called Connect the Dots. I leave you with this quote from the late Sir Ken Robinson. Truthfully, what happens is, as children grow up, we start to educate them progressively from the waist up. And then we focus on their heads and slightly to one side. Here's to making rhythm count for our students from the waist down first, and then from the waist up. Until next time, see you in the trenches.